Welcome to the Bitcoin Breakout, a production of the Survival Podcast. I'm your host, Jack Spierko. Remember, you can always find all our episodes at thebitcoinbreakout.com. You can also find all episodes of the Survival Podcast at tspc.co. If you want full personal sovereignty, Bitcoin is only one step. On the Survival Podcast, we discuss all aspects of self-sufficiency, self-reliance, independence, and personal liberty. Now strap in and get ready for another episode of the Bitcoin Breakout, where we discuss how Bitcoin and the Lightning Network will literally change everything. Fix the money, fix the world. Well, hi there, folks. Welcome to the first ever episode of the Bitcoin Breakout. And I want to lead off today with what these first few episodes are really going to be all about. And then we'll dig into today's topic, which is what is money. So for those that maybe found this video, somebody shared it with you, or you're listening to the audio version of this podcast that will eventually go out and be on all the services, just a little bit about me. I am a longtime podcaster. I have been doing a show called The Survival Podcast that deals with prepping and lifestyle designs since 2008. Uh, we get about a quarter million downloads per episode uh, in the audio format over time. So I am a long-term podcaster. This is going to be – somebody actually just asked me in the pre-chat here, When I said, hey, there's actually a YouTube channel for Bitcoin Breakout, and here's where you can find it. And it, the short URL to find it uh, is bit.ly, uh, bit.ly forward slash BTC Breakout. You can go there and subscribe to it. help get that channel off the ground. I'd appreciate it. But they said, did you just soft fork yourself? And we're not going to get into advanced uh, crypto strategies and Bitcoin strategies today or anything like that. We're not even going to talk that much about Bitcoin in the first episode. We're going to talk about money and the history of money. But it would be more like a side chain. So the way that's going to, what I mean by that is there is going to be both things at the same time. These first, I think it's going to be four episodes now. These first four fundamental episodes will be completely standalone. That way we can get the bitcoinbreakout.com website up, get it syndicated into iTunes and value for value and all that and Spotify and all the other services because it'll be something there. Uh, then on the 29th, here's a big announcement already. Uh, our first guest on this podcast will be none other than Natalie Brunell, who was the uh, the anchor person for the media desk at Bitcoin 2022. So not exactly a small win to have as our first guest uh, on the Bitcoin Breakout. And the Bitcoin Breakout will be its own thing. You'll be able to subscribe to it and not care about the Survival Podcast at all if you don't want to. It will also be that other than the first four Fundamentals episodes, and I'll tell you what those are going to be in just a minute, Uh, that all episodes of Bitcoin Breakout will also be episodes of the Survival Podcast. So there's been some confusion in my long-term audience about, well, I have to go over here to find it. It's going to be in both places. My goal is to do one show a week on Bitcoin, Bitcoin technology, lightning, uh, liquid, et cetera, what's going on in that world, because I think it's so important to preparedness to to have the hardest money that's ever existed in your life. But that way, my people that are just into like permaculture and bushcrafting and food storage and all the other stuff I talk about can just go, I don't listen on Tuesdays or whatever day I'm going to do this. I haven't decided yet. So it's going to go in both places. So, yeah, think of it like a side chain, like lightning for those that are switched on enough. Uh, but that's how that's going to work. Uh, thank you for uh, tuning in today. Those of you guys that are here, I can't believe we have like 41 people completely unannounced until five minutes before we started and just on social media. But thanks for tuning in. And we'll see if more kind of come in over time. So let's start off with what is money it being our first episode and why are we going to do this? Why am I going to do the first episode of something I've called the Bitcoin breakout just so I can talk about Bitcoin and then not hardly at all talk about Bitcoin? 
Because if you don't understand the history of money, what money is, the basic history of accounting, then fully understanding and wrap your head around why Bitcoin has become the success that it's become and why its success is pretty much assured going forward is really impossible. And what happens is, and this is something that's really important for you guys to understand, okay? Really important to understand. Not everybody that rejects Bitcoin is stupid, right? It's not like you're smart and they're stupid. Actually, some very intelligent people reject Bitcoin. And, And the more intelligent a person is and the more they've benefited from the existing system, hence the more trust they have in the existing system, the more likely it is to actually be difficult for them to accept Bitcoin because they have had a, uh, an absolute 100% basically a confirmation of their bias, right? It's not just confirmation bias, but a confirmation of their bias. The dollar works, and I know it works because I have a yacht. And not everybody that's rich just inherited their money, guys, right? These are people that, you know, have incredibly high IQs, and they reject Bitcoin too. And they do because, again, of that perception bias but and co- the confirmation of said perception bias. But they also do because it's difficult to understand because what I'm about to teach you, no matter how advanced your economics course is, a lot of it they don't teach you. Because what, basically what you have is the, 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 the grand, great-grandchildren of, of Keynesian economics teaching the great-great-grandchildren of Keynesian economics. So it's just been this way forever. So... Where I try to start with when I answer this question of what is money is that money is energy. And once you understand that money is energy, Bitcoin makes perfect sense. It makes perfect sense. It is a way that we take our life force and we save it for later so that we can exchange it later on. And it's because of the old saying, barter is better. It's wrong. Barter isn't better. If barter was better, we'd all barter all the time. Now, the sentiment of that phrase for people in the anarcho community, et cetera, of if I can give you pears from my pear tree for figs from your fig tree across the fence, that's better than using their money. The sentiment's correct. But as a functional means of exchange, barter is terrible. Because even if we have an agreed upon thing that both of us think this is a great deal, let's say I'm a cattle rancher and I raise beef cattle. And I sell beef by the quarter beef, the half beef, or the whole beef, depending on what you want. And I need some work done. And you can do that work really well. And I'm like, you know what? If you do that work, I'll give you a quarter beef. And you're like, that's a deal. And we do it. Okay, it's better. But what happens when you need more beef and I don't need that work anymore? Or do you want to do more work, but I don't have beef for you right now? We need a means of exchange. That's what money ends up being. And I, I do ascribe to um, a philosophy known as thermoeconomics meaning that it is literally energy. I did this thing of some value for some other person, and they tendered a consideration to me in the form of money. And when you think about it as a battery, and we'll get more into this in episode two, it makes perfect sense that then you would want the most efficient, least leaky battery with the least amount of loss when it's transferred later to somebody else's battery you can find. And that's been the goal of money, Since the dawn of money. That's why gold was used as money. Silver was used as money. It was finite. You couldn't just make more. The alchemists never figured it out. Somebody's asking if this account 
meaning the new Bitcoin breakout account on YouTube is run by me. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. This is they're both my accounts. I, I hope I was clear about that in the beginning. Anyway, um, so that's that's why people used gold, especially before we had these giant machines that could just grind up the ground and pour acid on shit and make giant pools and, and extract gold from places we never knew there was any gold before. When we actually had to pull gold out as a nugget out of the ground, it really was heavily finite and supply and ability. And so when, when I accepted an ounce of gold or a tenth of an ounce of gold in return for my energy, it did a really good job as a battery of holding on to that energy. And less so today because we can dig deeper, we can use other technologies, et cetera. But it, it is the case that it's a store of energy. And all money, everything that's ever been used as money is a store of energy if it's been, it's been efficiently used as money. I don't care if it's a tally stick, which were just two sticks from the crown back in England thousands of years ago. It lasted for hundreds of years. And the two sticks had to make perfectly. And if they did, then you had the value of that stick in the king's treasury, right? That was still storing your life energy. Now, how well did it do it? That's for episode two. But that's what we're trying to do with money is to store energy efficiently so that when I need a thing and you don't have the thing, you can just give me some energy and I can store it to buy the next thing that I need. So um, I just got a text message that my dog's veterinary uh, appointment is confirmed tomorrow. I'll take the dog in. I'll pay the vet in dollars because that's what they want. They'll use those dollars to pay their staff. And that's just a transfer of my energy that I'm expending right now in the way that I make a living to the veterinary clinic, to the vet tech that gets paid with my money, to the convenience store that she buys a bottle of wine with on the way home, et cetera. It's also something else, though, and this is something I've had a big disagreement with about people, especially people that are really switched on the cryptocurrency, that always like to point out that what cryptocurrency really is, Bitcoin really is, is a ledger of account. And my response is all money is a ledger of account, and it's where money derives its value. And money is all money that we've ever used in the history of mankind. It's fundamentally worthless unless it has something to account for. If I offered you a thousand one ounce gold coins right now, not only would you accept it, you'd be pretty happy about it. And if I said there's no strings attached, just give me your address and I'll mail you a box fully insured of a thousand gold coins, it would be pretty good for you. And you would be able to take the, the, that gold and you would be able to use it and exchange it for dollars or euros or whatever and buy a ton of shit with it. If you were on a desert island with a bunch of your friends and you had only the resources on that island and I gave you a box of a thousand gold coins, they're kind of trinkets on the island, aren't they? And this is true of every form. Dollars? What good are they on that island? What good is, what good is any form? Silver? Euros? Bitcoin? Let's say you, on this magic island that you can't get on and off of and nobody can bring you anything that you had an internal internet with an outpoint that literally could make Bitcoin work on that island and you were comfortable. You're using a side chain that you're comfortable with. What would a thousand Bitcoins do on that island? Nothing. Nothing. Until you had enough of an economy for that money to function to account for exchange, it's useless. Gold is one of the more useless things that we have. There's a few things we can do with it in like the industrial scientific world, but silver is far more useful for that stuff. 
And anything gold can do, silver can do good enough, at least the technology we've developed now. So it doesn't have an int- this word of intrinsic value. Without the accounting, there's nothing there. So what I like to do now, and this is better, like I, I did a very similar episode to this about two years ago on my main podcast, and I have much a much better way to explain it today. And that is, well, how many entries of accountants, uh, accounting in the ledger are there? So when you think of a cash payment, whether that's me giving you a gold coin for a sack of grain or a dollar for a sack of grain or a stack of dollars for a sack of grain, whatever it is, we would have at that point what I would call no entry accounting. We have relied on the general value theory of the currency in question as to what's worth what. So if if you're my buddy and you live next door to me and you reload and you reload me a box of 338 Winchester Magnum, and I hand you a 25, a 20 and a $5 bill, or I send you $25 worth of Bitcoin on the Lightning Network, or I give you an ounce and a quarter of silver, whatever it is, and you don't write down anything, and I don't write down anything, you just give me the good and I give you the cash. It is a ledger of account in that we have a, a thing of known value being transfer, transferred for a thing of subjective value. We've both agreed that this is worth about this much at this time to me. And we made that exchange and the money itself acted as the form of account, but you didn't make an entry. Then we have what's known as single entry accounting. And this is still practiced today in a lot of small businesses. This means that every transaction has a single journal entry. There's actually a journal somewhere, a piece of paper, or there's a computer program and you sell, you're actually an ammo shop now, you know, Above board, you got FFL and all that shit. And somebody comes into your, your ammo and gun shop and they buy a box of 338 Winchester Magnum. You have a point of sale system. It's all automated now. But in the old days, you would have said that's $25. The person would pay you and you write down you have a sale for $25. But that's all you would write down. And then when you paid your bills, you would journal the expense side. And that's single entry. Each entry is single. They don't connect to each other. And then you can't produce this thing in accounting. And I have a background in accounting and bookkeeping called a balance sheet. And I think the new formula is like assets equal liabilities plus equities. And back, I'm so old. Back when I learned it, it was A equals L plus C. Assets equal liability plus capital. So in double entry accounting, there's a chorus. Something happened on the other side. I sold a box of 338 Winchester, my inventory declined by one box of ammunition. And my inventory, that is not just inventory management. That is that the the amount of value that I'm holding in, in my inventory went down when my revenue went up, even if the expense was accounted for in the past. Now, this is the gold standard of accounting, and it has been for over a thousand years. This is what every big company does. You, you, if you're not doing double entry accounting, you can't go public. Even many small businesses practice double entry accounting. If I go to a bank and I want to borrow money, they want to see a balance sheet. It's much easier as a small business person that's 100% self-employed to be able to get a loan from a loan underwriter if you can provide a balance sheet with your income statement. So this has been it. And I'm not going to go deep into accounting practices, but this is the thing that we've always done. Now, here's the issue with the way money works today in double entry accounting. Who says? How do you know? 
I don't want the government to be able to look into my business any more than they have to, so I don't really want to disclose my books. But you know who else I don't want looking into my business? My competitors. So the problem is, did it really happen the way that I said it did? And if you paid me, did you pay me what you said you paid me? My books and your books are kept separately. We each have our own accounting department. There's no third party, right, that says this transaction happened exactly this way. So if we have to involve a third party, I write a check. It goes through the banking system. Now what we have is a trusted third party. Now maybe that third party actually doesn't break its trust, but it's a, we have to implicitly trust my bank and by the way your bank. So now we have double third parties in the system, and they really don't have access to the accounting, only the transaction. So it's still double entry accounting, and therefore we need this fee sucking entity in the middle, known as the banking system. Especially once we start doing transactions that involve credit. We really need that too. Now we really need this third party, so that way in every transaction they can suck a minimum of three percent out of it. When we get into blockchain, and this is a theory that's existed a long time, that this would be a good thing to have, but nobody was ever willing to do it because nobody wanted to give a third party this much power. We have triple entry accounting. Let's keep it real simple. There's a gentleman named Walt. Right, Walt is in the uh, live chat here. Walt says good day. Well, good say Walt says good day, and I and Walt decide to do business. And I say I'm going to send this thing to you, and Walt says I'm going to send you thirty dollars worth of, of Bitcoin. And so Walt sends me the Bitcoin. I say I send him the thing. Did I, somebody says I can't hear my voice? It, it's got to be on your end because nobody else is having any problems. So I'm going to have to tell you to check your system. Anyway, so. Did we actually send, did I actually send, and then did Walt actually receive? Well, with a bank, you'd say, well, you have a canceled check. Can I trust the bank? Who is the bank? What did the bank charge me for that? With cryptocurrency and blockchain, we have, we have miners that are really transaction validators, and they agree, and they publish in a blockchain a set of numbers that simply say, hey, This, this amount of Satoshis went from this number to that number, and now you have triple entry accounting. This is actually one of the most revolutionary things that's ever happened to, let, let alone it's, it is Bitcoin that did it first, but to money. Triple entry accounting in a trustless system. This is where the trustless comes in. There is no need for me to trust Miner A, if there was only one Bitcoin miner doing this, I would have to trust them. But there's thousands, tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of nodes now out there. And it's not just miners. Many of you that are listening to this, you run a little bitty box, a validation node. Maybe you run your own wallet transactions through it. Maybe you don't. Maybe you just do it to contribute to the ecosystem. And when that transaction gets broadcast... All the nodes pick it up over time. And when more than half of the nodes agree and the next block is validated by a miner and that block is added to the chain, it's that's that thing happened and it's preserved forever on that blockchain. Well, what about my privacy? We'll get to that later in the next episode. That's just what it is. And that's where I want to start out with what it is. So. Single entry, double entry, and triple entry accounting are complex, and I can't go deep into them. But if you want to really understand this fully, 
it would behoove you to do a little bit of reading on them. So I have links to all three in the video notes below this video. Now, next, I want to kind of hit again on the thing that I said that money is worthless until it has something to account for. That's why we just described this accounting. And this is where you'll fully understand and appreciate what Bitcoin is when you, when you grasp this. That applies to Bitcoin. That applies to any cryptocurrency. I focus on Bitcoin only, but that applies to Bitcoin. Bitcoin, when people say Bitcoin has no intrinsic value, if you, if you were to add without something to account for, you'd be correct. But you would also be able to say, well, then the United States dollar has no intrinsic value without something to account for. And the Peter Schiff's of the world would say, I've got it. I've got gold. It, it has intrinsic worth. Can you eat it? If I plant it in the ground, does it grow? Is there enough of it to reliably build a house? Is it lightweight enough to substitute for something like steel? It, anything that actually makes good money would generally not have an intrinsic value, meaning it could function as not money and be valuable. It's going to be in such a limited supply that it's better as money than as an industrial product. It's not going to be a consumable. You see how that works. And once you get that, then you can say, okay, well then, since we, since no money has intrinsic worth, and it only has worth once we're using it to transact and use it as a means of account, then we can judge the form of money on how well it performs that function. And again, we'll get into this with the next episode, which will be what is Bitcoin. But Bitcoin performs this function infinitely better than gold because it moves across space-time quickly, cheaply, and efficiently. So it, it allows itself to move across space and time. But it also preserves value across time. So the, the weakness of the dollar is it's actually designed to become worth less over time. When you store your, your economic energy, your life force in the battery that is the dollar, You don't just know it's going to leak. You pretty much know exactly how much it's going to leak under the best circumstances over time. And over a period of about 10 years, the leakage is effectively about 100%. You have pretty much a dead battery in what it does relative to what it did before. And with current inflation rates, that might even be worse. So how do we create money in our current situation? How is it manipulated and how does it move? These are also questions that the average person cannot answer. The person that has a, like complete faith in the dollar and believes that it really is good money and thinks you're stupid because you own Bitcoin. If you say, how is money created in society today? The U.S. dollar. They have no idea. They don't know. And they might say something, you know, if they paid attention more than five minutes. Well, the government prints it. That is not how money is created. We shouldn't even use the term print anymore when we talk about new, new dollars and new money. It creates a lot of confusion. Our money is lent into existence from the top all the way through the system that's known as fractional reserve. Every dollar is a certificate for debt. And I'm, I want to say, I want to compare it to Bitcoin, but I'm, I'm really going to try to stay off Bitcoin in the first episode. Just talk about the existing monetary system, the fiat monetary system, the debt-backed currency system. I like that better than fiat. Fiat is how we got it, but debt-backed is more what it is. 
So what people think is that the United States Treasury Department just decides, hey, we need some more money. How much? A gajillion dollars. Printer go burr, money come out. No. No. What happens is the government actually issues a bond, and then somebody has to buy it, a U.S. savings bond. That's me, you, your grandmother, a pension fund, another country, the Goldman Sachs, whoever. Or if no one will buy it, then the Fed buys it. We're not going to get that in today, but just they don't even use money to buy it. They create money to buy it with. They buy something that's nothing with nothing. But somebody buys it. And this goes on the balance sheet, remember the double entry accounting, as money that is owed. But it also is money that now is. This seems complicated. It's really not. It's so simple. Your mind is like, no. No, that can't, it can't work that, but it does. So when the government issues the bond, and it is now, it now becomes money. But this doesn't just happen at the top level, right? And as long as it is the government issuing a bond, and Germany buys a hundred million dollars worth of U.S. bonds, it's not a direct creation of money yet. There's derivatives later that will be used. We'll get to that in a second. But when, There is no Germany to buy the debt. And the Federal Reserve, which is the banks buy the debt, they just make a journal entry. Deposit to United States Treasury one gajillion dollars. And that new money was just created by the issuance of the bond. That's where it starts to go sideways. And here's where it keeps going sideways. And this is where you, this is where you have to understand that just the issuance of money alone is not all of inflation. And the issuance of money alone doesn't generally in of itself just cause inflation. That's misinformation. We all know how bad that stuff is, right? So now K-Bonk's here. So we'll use K-Bonk. We'll pick on him for a minute. K-Bonk's like, I want to buy me a house. So K-Bonk goes down to the, the bank of, uh, of Michelle 1776, who's also here and says, Hey, I want to borrow 300,000 of them dollar things to buy me a house. Now, what people think happens, even if they're smart enough to know the concept of a 10% reserve requirement, is that the bank would need, in reserve, to, to, to loan K-Bank this $400,000. They would need $440,000, and then they would loan him the $400,000. They'd take the $400,000 they had. They would give it to K-Bank. He would sign a piece of paper that says, I promise to pay it back under these terms over this time period, and then that $40,000 would go into some kind of magic reserve vault, and that would be that the bank is able to do business with all of its other customers by holding that reserve. That's not how it works. That's not even close to how it works. So K-Bank walks into the bank and presents the fact that he can pay bank the ba Bank of Michelle back the money. And then What happens next is the bank says deposit, Michelle gets on a computer and says deposit to K-Bank $400,000. As long as her bank has at least $40,000 worth of reserve, she can do that transaction. Where'd the $400,000 come from? It didn't. It didn't come from anywhere. The loan created the money. K-Bank's promise and ability to service the debt made new money. So when you think that the only people printing new money is the Federal Reserve and the United States government, you don't understand where actually the majority of money printing happens. It happens in loans 
to consumers, from to companies, from from consumer to consumer, from 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 bank to consumer. All of these loans actually grow the monetary supply, what's known as the M3. All the money out there in bank accounts, in your in, in the form of cash, in your mattress, that's all the M3. They don't like to talk about M3. They changed to M2. We won't get into that today either. But they don't really like to talk about how much money really exists. They hid those statistics for a while. We have this newfangled thing called the Internet now where people publish it. So they once people start publishing something enough, they stop trying to hide it. But that's how money actually is created. It's lent into existence. Conversely, if you look at something like Bitcoin, and again, I want to stick more to the existing system today to give you this foundation. Bitcoin is mined into existence. It can't be multiplied with lending. Now, somebody can create some sort of derivative lending system. If you have faith in it, fine. But you can't literally, I'm not talking about leverage. I'm talking about actually the issuance of debt, actually creating money that actually circulates through society. And then it's manipulated in that the closer you are to the faucet, where it comes out at the top, the less your cost of money is. To where the banks are able to get money for effectively free. And then they loan it to you at interest, but they're not even loaning you the money they borrowed. They're loaning you money backed by the money that they borrowed for almost nothing. And then they take the money that they borrowed for almost nothing. And they go buy the bond that was originally issued to create it with it. And they make a little incestuous skim off of that, a point or two on the money that they borrowed at your expense to loan you money at your expense. And the higher you are in that chain, the less the money costs out of the faucet. And the less you're affected by it being inflated. So if you're JP Morgan Chase and you're right up there at the top of the faucet sucking it out and they inflate the supply, it can even hurt you a little bit in the short term, but in the long term, you're good. You're good, baby. Unless the complete bottom of the economy falls out and then we just reboot, rebase it, you're good. But if you're a little old survivalizer or Hunter SF770 sitting here in the chat, And they make a gajillion new dollars and it gajillionizes itself more through lending and expansion. And then other inflationary factors come in like really shitty government policy that jacks up the price of fuel, that jacks up the price of all the goods that the money's now competing for. And some of those goods are in short supply. Inflation gets magnified. It's not just the monetary supply. It's the monetary supply plus the velocity of money, and velocity of money is not just money moving and how fast it moves back and forth, how fast it moves and multiplies in the economy, plus overall economic and governmental policy, plus law of supply and demand. All of that factors into inflation. There's multiple inflationary policies at play right now that are causing the inflation. It's not just raw printing. If you raw print the shit out of money, but demand is low, And people don't go get loans that don't make more on top of the more. And people don't buy a bunch of stuff. And people all sit on it. You effectively can end up with more dollars and almost no inflation. So they need two things to happen for inflation to do its job. And they want it. It is a positive in their view. It is the plan. But they want a controlled inflation of about 2%. In real numbers, by the way, since 1913 when they started doing this, they've never effectively held it at 2%. They have some years with their numbers, which are lies, and we won't get into that today. But the best that they've done historically is about four. So remember the thermo thermoeconomics thing? The battery that is your life force that you put into that money is draining at a minimum of 4% a year. 
And that's when everything's working good. So when you hear inflation is eight and a half percent, that's really bad. That battery's now joint. Think about your, your cell phone battery over the next hour, eight percent drains, even if you don't use it. Think about if you turned it off and like, I'm going to preserve the battery. And when you turn, it was a hundred percent, you turned it off and you turn it on tomorrow and it says 92%. Since cell phones don't live as long as you, it's a pretty good analogy. Your year is their day. And then when they tell you 8%, you're looking at more of a cost of capital right now, according to Michael Saylor, who I trust with these calculations, is about 20%. And that's the existing monetary system. And the next thing we need to understand is that the ability to create money is not magic. It just appears as magic to those that don't understand how it works. Everybody, anybody can create money. I could literally right now, you know, I have a piece of paper here. I got a whole bunch of this paper. And I could get on, play around a little bit with some uh, graphic art stuff and create uh, a form of money. I could call them jack bucks. And they could come in ones, fives, twenties, and hundreds. Twenty hundred what? I don't know, jack bucks. And I could set my printer to print front and back. And I could send them to the printer and I could print off a gajillion jackbugs. I could cut them up. I could even sell them in a circulation. You get a thousand jackbugs for a dollar. Come buy them at jackbucks.com. And we could sell that money into circulation. Who would take it? Who would take it? And the more I, now it's true, the more I made, the, the, the less that somebody would be like, oh, it's kind of funny, right? But. I mean, you can buy a, a, like some $500 million Zimbabwe bill or something like that, which is a real one that failed, and somebody made one that looks like U.S. currency, right? And, and then they sell those as a novelty. But it's not used as a means of exchange. Nobody would use it. So when we get into cryptocurrency, anybody out there can go out and just basically copy or fork, let's say, the Bitcoin blockchain. And many cryptocurrencies, that's what they are. Litecoin is a fork of Bitcoin, and then they change the monetary policy. And you have to think about that. Like the whole, there's only 21 million Bitcoin. That's monetary policy. So if you're going to evaluate a cryptocurrency, can the monetary policy be easily changed? Bitcoin's never changed its monetary policy. Litecoin hasn't either. Ethereum changed its monetary policy about eight times already, at least. When you hear they're burning ETH, That's a change in monetary policy. But anybody can create money. I could create jack tokens on something like Algorand or, or ERC20 or Polkadot or Cosmos or whatever. And I could even pay an interest rate if you stake them, if I'm in that world. Does it matter? Would you care? Do you think you could go downtown Fort Worth like I could do right now and there's a steakhouse down there I can go to and walk in and say, I would like, because I like good wines, I would like a bottle of Opus One, please. And I would like a big, beautiful bone-in ribeye for myself. And my wife would like a nice eight-ounce dry-aged filet. And when the tab comes, I go, hey, can I pay you with Jack Tokens? I either better shit a Visa, a MasterCard, or some cash, or they're going to have me washing dishes and going to jail. But that particular restaurant I'm thinking of, if I go, can I pay you in Bitcoin? They're like, absolutely, sir. They bring a little thing, and I scan it, and I can pay in Bitcoin for it. Because people have chosen to use it 
it functions. So creating something that is money, since it doesn't have intrinsic value, is something anybody can do. And today, with blockchain technologies, I mean literally anybody can do it. If you can cut and paste, you can spin up a blockchain and create a token. It doesn't matter. It doesn't have any value until people choose to adopt it and use it. So the next question that would be, when people do adopt money and use it, when it does function, what causes failure in money? And people will say, well, it's inflation. Well, maybe. Deflation, if it's in a bad way, can cause monetary failure as well. Underlying fundamentals of the issuing authority can destroy money. So if, all, like, we think of the United States dollar, it's the full faith and credit of the United States government. You know what it is? It's a big-ass blue-water navy with nuclear weapons that backs the U.S. dollar into its insane level of value. It should. I know it's lost a lot of value, but, I mean, it's the most powerful currency in the world. There isn't a nation on the planet that won't accept dollars. They might want to do business in their own currency, but if you say, hey, we want to buy a whole bunch of your shit, here's some dollars, they will take them. But without the, the military might of the United States government and kind of our you know, perfectly isolated little landmass away from most of the rest of the world with two big-ass oceans separating it, we wouldn't be able to get away with the reckless behavior that we, we, we have. So if the U.S. military apparatus collapsed, not saying it's gone, just saying if it did, the dollar would fail even if it had been well-managed and it wasn't overinflated. You see how that works? Because in the end, what actually kills all money is what actually creates money of value in the first place. The confidence of the people in the economy that use it. No matter what the cause of the failure of confidence, and when that confidence fails, the money begins to fail. So there's a very famous scene in, I think it's the first episode of Star Wars, which is really the fourth episode of Star Wars, where the Jedi are trying to buy the freedom of Anakin's mom. And there's this creature, I don't remember what his name is, but they're like, well, we have Republic credits. And he says, that's not real money. I don't take Republic credits. That's not real money. The government's money is not real money. That's currency failure. That means that the person who's willing to transact says, I don't want that anymore. I want this other form of currency. And that's when that person worries that I can't use this thing to buy the things I need. Or if I don't need to spend it tomorrow, by next week it will be worth half of what it is this week, and therefore I can't afford to have a battery that leaks that bad. In the end, this is always what causes every currency to fail. And governments have multiple things that they try to do to restart a currency that's on the brink of failure. So if you look at the history of the United States dollar, it's it's a, a currency with multiple defaults. The formation of the Federal Reserve itself put the power of monetary creations fully into that of the banking system and took it out of control of the government. And it was effectively a default on the existing monetary base. When Franklin Roosevelt took us and, and moved into a fractional gold standard, basically seized all the gold, 
and then revalued gold against the dollar, that was a default. But it was a default because the whole system was failing. Let's reboot it without going through the pain. At least not not the important people are going to go through the Like if the average Joe goes through the pain, that's just part of life. But we the elites, we don't want to give up power and control, and we don't want pain. So then later on in the 1960s with the, with the, uh, the Silver Act, the Silver Coinage Act, when they took the silver out of the change, that was yet another monetary default. And then in 1971, when Nixon closed the gold window and decoupled gold from the dollar, that was another default. So what's the plan when a currency starts to fail and you're not ready for it to fail yet? a default by changing monetary policy. Now, the question is, as the dollar heads toward another failure, and it's heading toward one, we can all see it, then what is the next change in monetary policy? You can go back and reconnect it to gold. That would be an option. You could back it with Bitcoin. That would be another. I'm not saying any of these things. are. These are all options that could be done. You could create a commodity basket, Kind of like a, an algorithmic uh, stable coin. You could do that. And if you're controlling all the books, you can get away with it. You could create a central bank digital currency. You could pave the way for banks to issue stable coins, bring them under FDIC, and then make synthetic dollars that are backed one-to-one with real dollars, whatever that means, actual space credits from the Federation, right? And then you could send them all around the world when anybody with a little box and an app can then start transacting in dollars. Because as much as you might be upset with the dollar and monetary policy in the United States, if you're in Kenya or Uganda or about 80 other countries, if somebody gives you the ability right now to do business in dollars and makes it easy for you, you're going to do it. So how does that change monetary policy? Well, what we do then, if we take the gajillion dollars that are circulating mostly in the United States and intergovernment circulation with the dollar is the petrodollar. That means the reserve currency of the world, but that doesn't mean that somebody in Turkey is doing business when they go to a stand in dollars. They're using Turkish lira. If you change that calculus to the dollar is being used on the street in Turkey, the dollar is being on the street in Kenya, and I know they use paper U.S. dollars. I understand that. I'm talking about as a matter of course. Then you spread the inflation across the globe instead of just concentrating it to the U.S. and our intergovernment uh, transactions. And for a time, you stave off inflation. That, to me, is the most likely change in monetary policy to come. And the new crypto bill that we just got announced about from Christian Gillibrand and whatever her other name is, right, it seems to, like, make that more likely. Will it work? Don't know. I bet on the horse that is Bitcoin. That's where I put the majority of my reserve capital at this point. And leave somebody think that's new to my teaching that that means I don't value silver and gold. You would be wrong. I have recommended that most people maintain a ratio of about 5 to 10% of their net wealth in precious metals as well as another wealth assurance mechanism. And at one time, I was probably close to the 10% range, which is high on, on my recommendation. So over time, it's moved closer to the five, and I've allowed that, and I don't have a problem with it. And there's a certain point where if you go over a certain net worth, maybe it's 3%. So I'm not saying these other forms of wealth preservation are bad. I just see Bitcoin as superior. 
So that's how money fails. Let's talk about now, like this is something really important to understand because this will later in your journey as a stat sacker, hopefully, somebody that's going to stack stats, um, will help you understand the intrinsic, intrinsic's the wrong word, the innate value that there is in having a hard currency. And that is that money itself created the greatest freedom that humanity had ever known. And it's hard to believe because you can see so many bad things done with money. So don't worry. Next bullet point is how money created slavery. But this is how I mean it created freedom. At one point in human history, a human being not only was benefited by being, but must have been to survive a generalist. You had to be able to make an arrow and shoot an animal with it and fix it when it broke. You had to be able to make your own clothes. You had to be able to navigate. You had to be somewhat of a leader within your tribe because your tribe was going to be small and you needed leaders throughout the whole thing. It very specific gender roles because we had to because physically men can do things women can't no matter what anybody tells you or what any book tells you. And so that was the way of society. And this fundamentally limited the ability of humans to work together. All we had was barter. My tribe's a hunting tribe. Your tribe's a gathering tribe. We come across each other, kind of suspicious. We don't know each other yet. Both come at each other, hands up, you know, kind of a universal human signal. Maybe we use a different dialect so we don't directly communicate. But you hold up a bag and I... Bring it here, and then you open it up, and I look in it, and it's tubers. And I'm like, hell yeah, we eat those. Those taste great with boiled venison. And I'm like, my second dude comes up, hands me a bag of, of uh, venison that's dried out, and I put it down, and you look at it, and you're like, give me a little more. And I'm like, no. And then you go in your tuber bag, and you take a few tubers out, and then we look at it, and we kind of go, okay. Like, that's a fair trade. Well, And I might even give you a little extra because I want to make a new friend. But there's limits to that. And that means that your people have to specialize in getting those tubers and mine have to specialize in getting that meat. And because we're generalists, we're probably going to both be pretty good at both, and those traits even are going to be rare. So you're growing up in this society, and you start noticing certain plants that are edible. And you start thinking, gee, I wonder if I, if I dug those plants up, and put them over here and took care of them, if they would grow better, if I put them near the creek and I figured out to take this hollowed-out thing and dump water on them, because I know water makes the plants grow, not Brondo, even back then, that this would be great. And then if I kept doing that, maybe I could select the best plants and then cultivate new plants from only the best ones. And then my tribe would have the best stuff as far as this plant goes. And maybe we could even make it grow longer through the season so we have more of it. Do you have time to do all that shit? Remember, there's no college to go to that teaches you agriculture yet. Or you are a flint napper, and you are the most badass flint napper that your tribe's ever had. Do you have time to sit around and make knives all day? Until you have money, you don't. Even if your tribe becomes known as having these badass flint knives and can trade them, the other tribe only needs so many flint knives. And they're probably going to have a guy that's going to look at it and go, I can do that shit. But when we start having money, we discover gold, little pebbles of gold. 
we realize how scarce they are, and we start transacting in gold or silver or platinum or seashells or anything that fills in as money, now people can say, what I'm going to do is this thing. Maybe I still am a generalist in some ways, but I'm going to really work on this thing. And then somebody else says, wow, he's really good at the thing. I want to learn the thing, and now we have apprenticeships. And all of a sudden, we start having people who are like, well, my thing is I'm going to record the history of the tribe, and I'm going to create this thing called writing. And then you have these people called scribes that are like, I would like to learn to write. And then some people learn to read. And so, and so we go from telling stories around the fire to reading stories, so the story is actually the same. And all of a sudden, we start to develop something that looks like proto-civilization. And the freedom comes in that I can pursue the thing that I have the most talent and passion for. We're in a society without money, I can't. And then it all goes wrong. Then people we call psychopaths understand money better than everybody else. And they do. They're not stupid. Never think they're stupid. And they say, if we can control and manipulate the money supply, we can control a lot of people before we ever have to go to war. Because war at this time is incredibly expensive in blood and treasure. You don't have this giant army with all this mechanization and smart bombs that you can sit at home with your foam figure waving and it's like, whoa, America! You don't have that. Going to war means your ass is going to war or your son's going to war or all your sons are going to war or your husband and your sons and his brother that would take care of you if something happened to him. They're all going to war. But if we have money and manipulation and we can bring civilization size up to like the size of Babylon. We can have professional soldiers too. And then we can have proper agriculture, nice straight lines and plows and fields. And then the Pharaoh or the king or whatever says, hold on a minute. What if we give everybody a certain amount of the grain for free as a citizen? That'll keep them happy. That's the bread and the bread and circuses. But it won't be enough to really have everything that they want. It'll just keep them from dying, and they'll have to function in society. And then the money that we use, they can give us a portion of that. That's a tax. And we'll take that tax, and we'll use it to provide services for our slaves that don't know they're slaves. And then I got another idea. The grain, since we have all the grain... We'll make a piece of paper called a grain bill. It'll be another form of money. Check this shit out. I'll just, because we know how much extra grain we have. We'll just cut grain bills and put that into circulation, and we'll use it to pay people for their labor or their time or their materials. So you get extra chocolate from the Ministry of Truth this month for being a good slave. I'm only being a little bit facetious here. And then people say, well, wait a minute. I got enough grain. Since this can always be redeemed at the palace for grain, Bill, will you take this in return for your shit for my chariot? And he's like, yeah. And also the grain bills start passing around. So a lot of the grain bills don't come back to the king. And so one of the king's advisors goes, hmm, you see how this works there, your majesty? We can issue more grain bills than we have grain. And the king goes, whoa, wait a freaking minute here. I don't want to have my head on a pike. Oh, you got your soldiers for that. Don't worry about it. It'd be okay. Look, we figured out that at least 25% go more than five years before they come back. Might even put a little expiration date on it, but maybe we put it where they don't see it. We don't want to talk about it, have them all coming in at the last minute trying to get their grain. 
And all of a sudden, you have fractional reserve banking based on wheat and barley. And so your modern banking system pretty much works the same way. They just took the grain out, took the gold out. That's where you're at. And now you have an enslavement of society. Because if you have the ability to contract and expand the monetary system at will, you can always enrich your top layer at the expense of your bottom layer. Because this is where everything really goes sideways. When I, at the top of the faucet, decide I'm going to benefit these people, the Amazons and the Zuckerbergs and et cetera, and I'm going to stimulate the economy by issuing money, there is this belief that that is money from nothing, but it's not true. It's still the transformation of your life force into some other form. So where does it get its value? The $100,000 that you thought was completely safe that you wrapped up and put into a safe in the floor of your house, and it's a safe inside a safe, man. If you get hit with a nuclear bomb, that money will still be there even if you're gone. You know, There's no way anybody's getting that money. There are 47 combinations you need to get in there. If inflation's 5% this year, they just took $5,000 out of your safe. That's how it works. They suck value from the existing monetary supply into the new money. There is no real new money because there's not more energy. It's, energy is not created nor destroyed. It only changes in form, and it changed in form from your possession to their possession. This is another reason that Bitcoin is superior money. No one can do that with it. Its value may fluctuate, but it doesn't fluctuate because somebody decided to change the code. So that's how money created slavery. How do you use this to your own advantage? Just the fact that you know it now, if you didn't before, is extremely advantageous. You can stop believing in the man behind the curtain. You can understand that that, that means that money that comes from this system is best leveraged in a way that makes you safe. In other words, you don't want to hold it. If you look at the uber-rich... Almost all their wealth is in the form of, of loans to them or loans against their assets. Since the money deflates or inflates in, in, in value so it ends up being worth less, you're better off leveraging it. And that means that this idea of pride of ownership is something that they use on us serfs to control us. Now, does this mean that you should you know, get the biggest mortgage you can on your property? No. No, because what does property have? Property has intrinsic value. So you start realizing that I need to put the most important needs in my life. I need the, the intrinsic value needs. I need those covered and that everything else in the world is leveraged. And we, we can't go deeper than that today. But if you have a appreciating asset and you borrow money against it at a rate that is less than the appreciation, you can pretty much do that forever. And that's how the rich run the world. And by the way, that's how you don't pay any taxes. If I have, we'll just invent something. I got a little photographic lens here. It clips on cameras. If this was worth $10,000 today, but I knew that conservatively it would be worth $20,000 in five years, I could borrow $1,000 against it pretty much forever every year. So every year I get a thousand bucks and I use the next loan to pay off the existing loan. And as long as it keeps appreciating at that value, I can do that for almost ever. 
So I have a thousand dollar a year in income. It could be a million dollars a year in income. Income in that it's coming into my, my hand that I can spend. The numbers are relevant. It doesn't matter. But ta- tax wise, none of it's income. It's zero income in the form of taxable income because I borrowed it. I wasn't tendered it as consideration. I borrowed it. I incurred a debt. This is why the rich owe so much money. But when you try to do that at a consumer level where your cost of capital is you know, getting eroded and your cost of debt is high, it doesn't work for you. So don't think you can just go out and borrow yourself into prosperity. But this knowledge can work for you if you use it. You also need to understand what you can and you can't control. You can't control United States monetary policy. You can't vote it to be changed. It won't happen. Your side can win every election next time. Every election. From dog catcher to president of the United States and the monetary policy, you're not going to change it. You might have some impact on the peripheral monetary policy, like how we treat other governments or what have you, and some supply and demand curve issues. But when it comes to how much money they're going to print or how they're going to contract the monetary uh, supply or what they're going to do, the people that do this, they are outside your sphere of control. It doesn't matter who the president appoints as the next chairman of the Federal Reserve. They're a mouthpiece for the people that make the decisions. So since you can't control that, you need to stop worrying about it. You control how much you earn and how you store your wealth. So think very hard. I'm not going to say then put all your wealth into Bitcoin. You have to make your own decisions. But put your wealth into things that hold value, not things that leak value. I believe that with money, we need three buckets that money go into. Bucket one, money that will be spent within the next week or two. I don't mind transacting in Bitcoin. If the other side will take Bitcoin, I'm not worried about volatility across that time frame at all. It's insignificant because even with a pretty good-sized move, up and down will balance out. Historically, we know this. And the money is going to flow. I know that on the first of the month, I have to make a mortgage payment on this house. If my mortgage provider accepted payments in Bitcoin, I would make them in Bitcoin. And all I would do is convert it to Bitcoin the day before my wife's going to cut the check. Instead of cutting the check, she'd send them Bitcoin. Wouldn't bother me at all. So I don't care if you hold, and that's why dollars are fine for that transaction as well, because the dollar's loss in value over time doesn't really matter if I'm going to make the money this week and spend it before next week's over, which is the majority of your cash flow. And that, I don't care what you do with it. Again, I want to move more toward a Satoshi-based economy, right? But dollars work for that. There's not a lot of concern on either side of it. Then you have the midterm bucket. Money that I might need in the next 30 to 60 days. I might not need it, but I might need it. Well, I want a very stable form of money for that middle bucket. This is this is money I might use because there's an opportunity. Maybe like right when COVID started, and I drive a really beautiful Challenger, Dodge Challenger. And Dodge freaked out when COVID started and said, hey, we're going to sell this car for $10,000 less than we paid for it. And I said, I will take one. I want a blue one. You got a blue one. We got a blue one. Deal. Right? So since I had reserve capital, I was able to just walk in and buy the damn car. I bought a car for twenty-four grand, and the same model selling right now for almost forty. That's opportunity capital. So it's opportunity and emergency. And keeping that in dollars makes a lot of sense. Maybe breaking it, half dollars, half Bitcoin, 
sure. But it's something you want a lot of stability in. Now, if you think about it, if you go half Bitcoin and half dollars with that reserve, they off-play each other and they actually stabilize each other to a degree. But all dollars, fine. Then you have long-term. Money I know I will not spend in the next couple months unless some really bad, complete meltdown of society happens. I am not spending. This is my long-term wealth. When you get there, you should be putting some portion of that, in my opinion, into something like Bitcoin. All right. Real value, friends and neighbors, is a path to liberty. I am big on liberty, and even though I'm creating this kind of production of the Survival Podcast, we will not fail to talk about liberty here. And real value is that path. And real value is the thing that you can do that makes other people tender consideration to you. And if you're a, you want to live on a Bitcoin economy and all the people that want to tender you consideration in U.S. dollars, part of what makes Bitcoin so valuable is it's, it's fungible 24-7, 365. They can pay you in, in any currency they want to and you can turn it into Bitcoin on your own. So if it's about stacking dollars, you can just take your Bitcoin that they want to pay you and make dollars out of it if you want to. It goes either direction. But where does the value that you get to hold, where does, where do you charge that battery up? And it's not just charging the battery. How do you expand the capacity of your battery? That's your wealth. Well, you do it by extending value to others. And the more value you can create and the more ways that you can create value, the bigger your battery can become and the more it can store. So what I want to kind of end with is forms of wealth. Now you guys have heard me talk about eight forms of capital. A lot. I'm going to break it down to just five forms of wealth. A little easier to understand for the new folks. But before I do that, I have to drop something on you that I hope hits a couple of you at least like square between the eyes when you really think about what this is. With all of the things we've just talked about money, have you ever asked yourself, because we did a pretty good job, I think, of answering the question, what is money today? I think most of you that listen to this in earnest could answer that question better than a lot of people with master's degrees in economics now. Maybe you need to listen to it a couple times and inform your own ways of explaining it, but you get a good answer to it. But we didn't answer the question, what is tax? I know some of y'all are typing in the chat already. Taxation is theft. I agree. But what is it really? Using the vocabulary that we developed in this episode, what is tax? To me, tax is the creation of involuntary debt at will by the state. Enforceable involuntary debt. Think about what that is. I can, I can enter into in my accounting ledger, my double entry accounting ledger, Gank L owes me $100 and you really do without your consent. That's what tax is. Tax is the ability to issue a debt that must be repaid by another party without their consent. So, yeah, that's theft. It's slave. Somebody's saying slavery. It's slavery, but it's slavery through debt. I create a debt because you took an action. You had the audacity, right, James, who says slavery. You had the audacity, James, to go out and exchange your labor with Jeff. And you did work for him. You had the audacity to make $1,000. If your tax rate's 20%, I created a debt obligation on your behalf to give me $200. Once you see tax that way, you understand how important it is 
to develop your life in a way that minimizes your tax impact. You're, you can go vote for a lower tax rate. It won't help you. It won't help you. The structure of how you manage your income, your expenses, and your personal enterprise, that's how you manage taxes. You minimize the ability to have somebody issue a debt against you against your will. But the other side is how you store your money. Because if, if tax is the creation of involuntary debt at will by the state, what's inflation? Again, we're not going to say money printing. Right. We're not going to say an increase in the supply of money at the same time we have a simultaneous decrease in product availability. That would be a good textbook uh, definition. But based on the fact I told you taxes, the creation of involuntary debt, what do you think inflation is? Inflation is the creation of an involuntary debt payment by the central banks in our system. If it was a true fiat currency issued by a government, then the government would do it. But whoever the issuing authority is of currency, they didn't just issue you a debt. They made you pay it. You're holding a dollar and I create a 10% inflation this year. You gave me a dime whether there's, and there's nothing you can do if you're transacting in my currency that I control. This is why control the currency, control the nation, control the world. This is why I can't remember if it was Rockefeller or who that said, I don't care about a nation's government. Give me control of its money because that's how strong it is. So if I say that, that Jeff paid James money and now James owes me $200, I still have to get it. First, I have to have knowledge that the, the, the transaction occurred. And then James has a, a, a huge ability to counteract my taxation. Well, Yeah, I, I, I did get paid a thousand bucks, but here's my expenses in my double entry accounting that go along with that, Mr. Government. Here's a depreciation on my asset. There's a lot of defensive tactics in the tax system, including, well, James and Jeff just did business and didn't tell nobody about it, right? I bet if James and Jeff, I bet if Jeff rebuilt James's fence, And they did cash business as neighbors. Neither one of them is filing a form. So a tax is a creation of a debt, but it's on the, the issuer of the debt to make sure it gets collected on. But inflation actually creates not just a debt, but a payment on the debt immediately and instantaneously. At will. Now who could, now that you want to know why the power to print money is so, so much the one ring to rule them all? Who can resist this? No matter how good a man is, how, how can a man not be corrupted or a group of men who are spoiled, enriched, and privileged and want to make sure that shit doesn't go away and they want to make sure it's there for their great-grandchildren to have in their trust funds and they can do this whenever they want? Throw it into the fire. No. Why don't I keep it? That's the power for money. So the only way to resist that ability to take your wealth is the whole thing's not denominated in that wealth. You People will say, well, I'll do it with stocks. This stock has an average annualized return of 14% a year. And if you even if you believe the inflation's 4%, right? Okay, that's 10% gain. No, they still took your money. You're holding Ford stock or GM or Tesla or Amazon or whatever. What's it denominated in? It's in dollars. 
you still you tendered risk, right? The, the investment could have went down. You gained through investment, and they stole money out of the, the underlying investment, and they stole money out of your gain, and they did it at will, and you cannot defend yourself. The only way is to get outside their system to the greatest degree possible to defend against the inflation ability to create debt obligation and payment instantly without your consent. So let's talk about your forms of wealth. Again, eight forms of capital from Ethan Rowland. You can look that up to learn more about this. But I like to take it down even a little bit less to just talk about not really capital, but forms of wealth that an individual can walk around and have control, possession, or use thereof. And I think if you want to have multiple streams of income, you need to have multiple forms of wealth to exchange for income. So number one is monetary wealth. It's the one everybody understands. Whether it's dollars, Bitcoin, gold, Russian rubles, euros, some form of money, something that you can have and you can send to somebody else. You don't have to be smart to have monetary wealth. If, if you, you know, you're an idiot, but it turns out you were the last remaining heir in a family line that was a billionaire family line. And your billionaire great uncle said, screw it. Give it to dumbass Tommy because that's just the right thing to do. Dumbass Tommy can become a billionaire. And dumbass Tommy has all the power of a billion dollars. That makes monetary wealth in some ways the most useful and also in some ways the most dangerous. Because I can do things with it since I don't have to have the ability to do those things. I can get other people to do it for me. So I can destroy your life with it. But... It's, it's a double-edged sword, isn't it? To make it a little easier to understand, imagine when you were 16 years old, you said, Daddy, I want a car. And your daddy had lots of money. So he said, I'll get you a car, son. You, and you, I mean, you just got your learner's permit, right? And you, and you went down to the DMV and you had enough sense that you could pass the test and you just got your actual license stamp. You can drive on your own. And you say, Daddy, I want me a Ferrari. And this is the 80s, so your daddy said, well, best Ferrari they make at this point in time, son, is a F40. It does 200-plus miles an hour, and he bought you one and handed you the keys to that car. What are the odds you're going to kill yourself or somebody else or both of you, especially if you're a hopped-up teen? Pretty good, isn't it, that you're going to kill yourself or somebody else? I know if you would have gave me a Ferrari F40, Right now, I'd either be laying in a cemetery somewhere or I'd probably be in a wheelchair if you give me one when I was 16. I was that stupid. I didn't need that kind of power. Money is the same, but it's worse. You thought Some of y'all, long-time people, you thought I was going to say same but different, right? It's the same but worse. You can do far more damage to yourself and others with money. So monetary wealth is incredibly important, but it's the one that we need to understand the best. But the means by which we acquire wealth It's the least important. Material wealth is another form of wealth. I own this property. And and some of the people that are like, real estate's a shit coin because you got to pay tax on it. And I have other properties that people pay the bills for the tax on. If you're a renter, you're just paying somebody else's tax bill. It's called leverage. It's one of the many forms of leverage out there. But we have material wealth. And I would say that that gold is kind of a hybrid between material wealth and monetary wealth. But material wealth, I'm holding up a little Leatherman tool here called the Skeletal. I love this little tool. This is a form. It's not a very big form, 
size or value, but it's a form of material wealth. It's a thing that I possess that I have that performs certain functions for me. My house is a much larger form of material wealth. It gives me a place to live, a place to conduct my business, which makes it actually have a tax advantage versus a tax loss, right? Because I have certain things I can do with it that the ability for me to deduct the square footage of this home that I use from my federal taxes more than covers my property taxes. That's a strategy. That goes somewhere else in these forms of wealth here in a second. But material wealth is just the stuff you have. And again, this is one of those things that is one of the more fundamentally limited forms of wealth, more so than monetary wealth, because it's more difficult to leverage. And when you leverage it, you're converting it into monetary wealth. If I borrow against a property and use that leverage to do something with that money that I obtain, I've had to transfer it into monetary wealth to make it work. Material wealth is what it is. Then you have what's called influence. We call it social capital in the forms, eight forms of capital, but influence. Influence is incredibly valuable. Sometimes influence is because you have just, you just have enough money and people know it, you have influence. Well, there's people that don't have a lot of money, but they have a tremendous amount of influence. And if they figured out how to leverage it, they'd also have a tremendous amount of money. Can you get somebody to do a thing? And I don't mean like manipulate your stupid friend into jumping out of a tree and breaking his leg, David. Um, no, I mean, can can you get people to actually act in mass in a certain way? It's an incredible amount of wealth. You think of how much, if you use influence as a form of wealth, how wealthy is the media? Primary propaganda arm of the government. Incredible wealth. It's not just the giant building with the letters at the top of it that all the, the people with the anchor woman haircut work in every day. The influence and the power that comes with the influence is real wealth. Now, that's corrupted influence, but you want influence as a form of wealth. You want to be able to make a phone call and get things done. When you have influence, you can leverage monetary and material wealth, and you can build an enterprise. Next, knowledge. See, the problem with the retarded great-nephew that inherited the billion dollars is he doesn't have knowledge. He doesn't know what to do with it. He's probably going to end up penniless or dead, effectively the 16-year-old with the Ferrari and a case of Jack Daniels. He'll end up in the bottom of a pool full of drugs, dead. Knowledge is how we can actually gain wealth in the first place and multiply wealth once we have it. So that's a big part of why I'm doing this Bitcoin breakout. I wanted to help you develop your knowledge of what Bitcoin is, what lightning is, and how they work. Because the opportunities that are going to be coming in the next five years. So five years, I expect that if you're stacking sats, your, your number go up. Sure. But nothing like it will if you understand what's going on and you figure out how to play some role in it or how to just use it in your business. How to just use it in your business. Because you want the formula for building wealth with Bitcoin right now. And this is why so many people get into 5,000 different shit coins. So they have something to talk about, to build influence with, right? To sell you more ads on YouTube or what have you. The formula is so simple that no one wants to talk about it. Take your surplus wealth, convert it into Bitcoin, and put yourself in a coma. 
in regard, not to the rest of your life, in regard to your Bitcoin. Stop getting on your damn phone every day and hitting refresh. And how much money do I have now? Same amount you had yesterday because it doesn't really matter. You have the same number of sats. All you need to know is, is the number underlying going up? Not number go up at the top, but like if I had 10 million sats today, do I finish the month with 11 million sats? That's all you need to know. As long as you're doing that and you do this over time, you'll build wealth. And if you do it enough, you'll build incredible wealth. With, and I'm talking, somebody said durable goods here. Yeah, sure. I mean, that's other ways to build wealth. But if you want to just know the formula for making money with Bitcoin, don't trade it because then you have to be irrational. You have to act in irrational ways. Right now, people are selling. There's never been, in my opinion, a better time to buy Bitcoin. It's the most asymmetric trade on the planet right now, this second. It's better than when it was $300. Jack, you're crazy. $300. Do you know how much money you'd have today? Yeah, but you know what your risk was? When Bitcoin was $300, we didn't have like the government coming out and saying, we're not going to ban Bitcoin. Because that's what our government's effectively saying right now. We're not going to ban this. No. I don't like this. Now, all our lobbyists are paying us to not do it. The network's bigger. It's more secure. It's accepted in more places. There's less risk. And yet the price is incredibly deflated, right? The price is down. And the things that are happening that are good for Bitcoin right now, if that shit had happened during all the Elon and Michael Saylor pump and El Salvador pump and all that, Bitcoin would have went to a quarter million dollars if we had this good news with that good news at the same time. We just didn't. This is part of the cycle. So this is why people want to make this harder than it is. Because that way they have something to talk about. They can build and peddle their influence with you and they can make more money so that they can have more dollars or Bitcoin or whatever. Where my goal is to give you the knowledge so you can build wealth for yourself. And my career has been, for those that are new to me again, the more I've done by spreading knowledge, the more's come back to me. I don't have to make the money directly. Because you build influence and you have all the monetary and material wealth that you could ever need. And the last is skill. Knowledge is simply, I know the thing. Skill is the ability to do it, to do it consistently and to do it right. I know how to build a knife. I've built one. I can do it. It'll work. It'll cut shit. I can't do it the way Patrick Rorman from Empty Knives does. Patrick made this knife that I carry on my belt almost every day. It is a literal piece of artwork. It is functional and it is beautiful. And it's one of a kind. I had him custom make it just for me. I don't have this skill. He does. We both have the knowledge. This is what a knife is shaped like. This is what you make it out of. This is how you attach a handle to it. This is what the pins need, how the pins go into it. This is what you do with it after you, you get it in a rough form. This is how you shape and sharpen a blade. We both know how to do it. Knowledge. Skill is the execution. Skill is the execution. And then you start to realize these forms of wealth leverage each other. So I have an incredible knowledge of the tax code because it was important to me. I want to know it, but I don't have the level that Mary Johnson, my accountant, has. And she has the skill of knowing how to put the knowledge together and make my number go down that I have to give the man every year 
So I take my, my knowledge and I leverage it with her skill. And this is when you start talking about things like we're going to build a parallel economy. That's what this is all about. Some of you guys know how to do coding. You need to be running and learning everything you can about lightning nodes because the thing you're going to do with it isn't even doable yet. You need to not let the base knowledge outpace you. And some of you, like, that's not, that's me. It's not my world. I'm playing around with a node. Tom's supposed to help me with it. We're supposed to do it this week. I don't think it's going to happen until I get back from my vacation. But I'm playing with a voltage node. That's a cloud node. I want to have a better knowledge. I'm never going to have the skill that he does. I don't, because remember, money freed us. I don't have a passion to sit behind a computer and type on it and learn all about. I just want a basic understanding so that I can recognize the opportunities when they come. Where I want to be involved. I want to be able to look at this and say, shit, I need that technology in my business. And then since I don't have the skill to do the implementation, that I can say, Tom or some other person, I need this integration done. And then I have enough knowledge to go, yeah, you're not charging me too much. You're being fair with me. This is going to work. And then I'll, that will build my monetary capital, mostly in the form of Bitcoin. But that's money, folks. That's how many, money works. I'm not going to do any Q&A today. We're at a minute and tw- an hour 20 here. I'm going to try to make that about typical for this show. This one was deep. We did a deep dive into money. I want to give you a few things that you can do to improve this foundation. One, I, I don't know if you like the guy or not, but Safe Dean, um, he has two books that I recommend. I think you can listen to them for free, both online. And I'll add links later to the video here. And when it goes on the website, I'll make sure that those links are there. But they're called the Fiat Standard and the Bitcoin Standard. Both of those would be fantastic resources to learn more about. Robert Breedlove did a whole series of podcasts with Michael Saylor. They're available on YouTube. I highly recommend those as well. And it's a lot like we did today. The first couple are really not about Bitcoin. This is the history of civilization. I think there's 13 or 16 of them. And you realize how smart Michael Saylor is. Now, I'm not talking about in regard to Bitcoin. You're talking about an MIT-trained engineer with a fundamentally fantastic additional understanding of human history, of basic science, of mathematics, and economics. That's a college-level course. On that, Saylor has a Bitcoin course you can take for free at Sailor Academy. I'll try to find that and add that later. Maybe somebody can drop it into the chat here if you already know what it is. It's it's basically a college-level, entry-level course in a Bitcoin. You can take it for free at Sailor Academy. Those are some resources that I would advise you to check into. The next episode that we do, and I don't know when I'm going to get to it. I definitely want to get to it before um, the 29th when we have Natalie on. It will be episode five, hopefully. Um, is going to be about what is Bitcoin? What is Bitcoin? How do you, how does it work? What is mining? You know that shit where they tell you mining is where computers solve complex mathematical equations. <laughs> Wrong answer. No, it's not. Mining has absolutely nothing to do with solving mathematical equations. I'm going to tell you why that's true in the next episode. And I'm going to talk about, well, how do you buy Bitcoin? Where do you buy it from? What are the trade-offs of different places to buy it? And how do you hold it? Long term, what is holding on exchange and why you shouldn't, you should hold on exchange long enough to get off the exchange, right? Or complete a trade. That's it. So getting your money off exchanges, a couple different options for what we call software wallets. 
running light nodes, and we're going to talk about hardware wallets. I'm not going to get into like full node versus light node, maybe a little bit, or a light wallet versus a full node wallet or, or what have you. I'm just going to give you the basic on it so you can feel comfortable. I know that most of the people that are sitting on, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars or more worth of Bitcoin, you don't need that episode, at least that part of it. And those of you that do need it, you're talking, you have, you know, a couple thousand bucks, a few hundred bucks, whatever, you're just getting started. All you really need to upgrade your position from holding on Coinbase is a software wallet. We'll talk about that. We'll talk about when to move into cold storage and seed backups and all of that. That will be episode two. Um, and then I want to do at least one more episode. I want to do something on the basics of lightning, and maybe we can fit a fourth one in before we get Natalie on. With that, I'm going to go ahead and wrap up today. This will not be published at the Survival Podcast. This will not be published at the BitcoinBreakout.com until later on. If you're watching this on a day, it was presented on the 7th of June. This was just something I did. I'm on vacation, guys, and I did this because I thought it was important to get this stuff out. And those of you that like seeing me online, guess what? I'm not done yet. Uh, we're at 11.34 right now, 12.30 p.m. Central Standard Time. I, Nicole Sauce, and John Willis will be on with our uh, weekly fireside chat. So I'm working off a lot for a dude on vacation. Thank you, guys. And if you really got something out of this today and you liked it and you like where we're going, please do two things for me. One, subscribe to the new YouTube channel. Don't unsubscribe to my old one. Just subscribe to the new one. I'm going to drop right now into the chat the new one so you can cut and paste it, and I'm going to put it up on the screen while I finish up. So subscribe to the new YouTube channel. As soon as I get a decent subscriber basis of videos up, I get all the syncing and everything going on with all the alternative platforms and make sure that none of this information ever goes away. And next up, if you if you know Bitcoin already and you know how Lightning works and you want to give me a tip for today, go to tiplightning.com, tiplightning.com. There'll be a QR code there and you can send me a few sats. And I've had some of you guys just learning how to do it, sending me 20 cents, 10 cents, whatever. Guys, I don't go, gee, you only took me 10 cents. I'm like, that's freaking awesome. That is freaking awesome that somebody watched what I did, went and read this one simple little website, downloaded Exodus and Wallet of Satoshi and moved some money around. Went, oh, this works. Let me see if I can send Jack a dime. Woohoo, it worked. That's power. That's knowledge. Knowledge leads to skill. We'll catch up with you guys later with episode two of the Bitcoin Breakout. And uh, this has been Jack Spearco. This has been another episode of the Bitcoin Breakout. To subscribe and learn more, please visit thebitcoinbreakout.com.